Oh no, we we started recording already. Okay. Oh, fantastic! fantastic. <laughs> Let me just introduce the show, and then we'll just get right into it. There's just too many interruptions. We'll, we'll edit out the audio, unnecessary audio, sure later thing, on. Sure thing. Welcome to another episode of Silk and Steel. I am your host Carl Za. Today is March eighteenth, twenty nineteen, and today we will continue the battle of Carhai with our very special guest, all the way from Sweden. <laughs> Welcome, Amir. Yeah, thanks, Carl. Glad to be back. Um, glad to have you on the show. We have. Uh, we actually faced Titanic struggle to get this recording session oh, going on. Good lord, <laughs> do not remind me. I would say that was a battle in the, of itself. <laughs> in a way, it was more epic. I, I felt like Crassus there for a second, actually. <laughs> this, is, this is how Crassus must have felt against uh, the technical barrage, the whole technical struggles <laughs> against the Parthian technology. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, um, okay. So last time uh, we had you on the show to give us a background of uh, the epic battle of Carhai between the Roman Republic and the Parthian yeah. Empire. It's really the first major battle between these two expanding empires, and you give a very in-depth background. But before we start on the battle itself, can you just quickly do a, a, a summary of recap so to catch some of our users who, who may not have listened to the first one or may forgotten some details? Sure thing, sure thing. I mean, uh, I think starting off with a recap would be the most merciful thing to do, actually, considering yes. uh, considering all the, uh, the uh, data that we processed in the last episode. Uh, now... It was dense. Yeah, it was very yeah, dense. It's 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 a lot of stuff to process, but uh, the onset of the battle is really just a result of causality, not coincidence. And in the previous episode, we established the following: first, we established uh, and addressed the uh, mythical "quote unquote" Armenian option and why it wasn't viable. Uh, and we're gonna also get into a little bit on why. It isn't viable as we uh, progress in this episode. And we have also analyzed the Parthian situation and its strategy uh, at the onset and at the, the uh, background of the entire thing and why the situation they were poised before wasn't all that good. We have also uh, rectified the uh, overall view of Crassus' campaign in Mesopotamia and in stark contrast to the chroniclers of the past, we also established that the initial campaign that Crassus had waged in Mesopotamia was a resounding success. Now, the record is largely decorated by all sorts of ill omen, quote-unquote, will of the gods and force majeure. And this is largely to whitewash the Roman defeat by blackening the name of Crassus. I think this is a common feature of storytelling in the ancient times because this is not uh, yes. limited just to say the Roman or the Greek uh, uh, history or storytelling. You know, there's a lot of instances, yeah. for example, in Chinese history, where uh, you know the 
narrator or um, the, the, the historian recording it, you know, giving you the 2020 <laughs> hindsight and, and, you know, and, and passing judgment say, oh, yeah, like the, the, the leading general made this stupid mistake after stupid yeah. mistake. And, and look, they could totally avoid this by listening to this sage man's advice. But now he ignored it. Sometimes it, it, the, the history itself was made into almost like a moral tale, right? Like how about how ignorance and stupidity leads to defeat. The actual historical truth gets fuzzy and somehow lost in that in that kind of retelling absolutely so today today we're going to readdress that historical wrong and give our audience the real thing (laughs) (laughs) hopefully uh absolutely as you just described uh we're poised before the dichotomy between the narrative and methodology and because we're using methodology in order to give the historical events of proper analysis, we also differ in our approach as opposed to chroniclers of the past who often try to weave it in into some sort of a narrative. So there's two different approaches. And I think also that in the bigger scope of things, we can't really blame them too much for not knowing any better. I mean, they didn't exactly have access to the internet like we have today. They don't really exactly have the access to all sorts of Uh, literature from all sorts of traditions like we do. So we also sit on a position of advantage. But through this analysis that I'm going to sort of guide us through here, uh, hopefully I'll also be able to uh, give us a little bit of a first-person perspective of why things went the way they did. Yeah, I read your notes. It it was amazing. Um, I mean, that was, uh, like you said, it's not something you get from... uh, Wikipedia, <laughs> which unfortunately most of our knowledge come from nowadays. Hopefully, hopefully uh, it's up to standard. So without further... <laughs> so let me, let, before you start though, let me just a quick, uh, do a quick recap of the events leading up to the battle. Um, so Crassus led his army uh, into... Uh, Mesopotamia, and he gave up on the Armenian option very wisely, as you pointed out, that uh, because the Armenia really just wanted to use the Roman power to come to their own aid in the struggle against Persians. And, and, and then Crassus realized, you know, it's a rather futile, roundabout way of going through, like, really hard uh, mountain roads. So rather, he, he actually did his sensible thing in his own time, uh, according to his own judgment, which was just to take the, the, the easiest, fastest road to Mesopotamia. And at the same time, uh, you know, two armies are heading out to meet him. And that is uh, the two Parthian army, one led by the king of kings, uh, Orotetus, and the other one by its very famous general, Serena. Okay, now that I've set the scene, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, you got that right. Well, here's how we now enter the springtime of 53 BC. This, this big clash is now really lurking in the horizon. So I think it's a good time that we look at our combatants. First 
things first, the Roman army of Marcus Licinius Crassus and then the Parthian army of Serenus. Now, we know from the records that the Romans stand at seven legions, which would amount to around 34,000 heavy infantry and 4,000 cavalry, out of which 1,300 are Gallic cavalry reinforcements, the rest being uh, drafted from native auxiliaries. Now, in addition to that, there's... Uh, an additional 4,000 auxiliary infantry, which would have fought as light infantry. So in total, the Roman forces would stand at approximately 42,000 men, uh, give or take. Now, it's also important to remember that before this new campaign commences, Crassus had detached 8,000 men, that is 7,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry to garrison the acquisitions from yesteryear's campaign into Mesopotamia. Now, among them, the garrisons would have been uh, stationed at Ichnai, Xenodotium, Nicophorium, and not least the town of Karai itself, from which we take the name of the battle itself. So these... Sure thing, sure thing. So in total, the Roman forces stand at approximately uh, 42,000 men. However, it is important to remember that before the campaign commences, Crassus had detached 8,000 men, that is, 7,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry to garrison the acquisitions from yesteryear's campaign into Mesopotamia, among them uh, the garrisons in Ichnai, Xenodotium, Nicophorium, and not least uh, in the town of Karai itself. So these 8,000 men are deduced from the total when uh, Crassus marches out from Antioch into this new campaign, uh, so as he marches out, uh, his army stands at 34,000 men. Now, some, however, do rejoin the marching army, telling stories of the Parthian forces who raided the region, and we're going to address the significance of this soon. Anyway, the Roman army by Crassus is very typically Roman, but it is a bit extra on the cavalry. So... In terms of the Roman army, as we all know, the infantry are clad in male armor and wear a helmet and carry a heavy shield, a pair of javelins of the type of pilum uh, that can double the spears. And uh, apart from this, they also carry a short sword, the gladius hispaniensis. Uh, and the Roman infantry fight tightly in rank and file and are trained to commence battles by showering the enemy with javelins and to engage at close quarters. Now, Crassus' best cavalry are the Gallic horsemen uh, that he received as reinforcements as he was, qu as, as he was quartering in uh, Syria from yesteryear's campaign. Now, they are capable fighters uh, armed rather lightly with light armaments. They're not described to be armored, and they are primarily armed with spears. Now, this is interesting because um, this is a, one part I never quite understood because the Gallic cavalry is quite famous, but they never really fought with uh, horseback archery, which was a primarily a feature in... Uh, Central Asian nomads and also Persians, uh, including Parthians, they, they fought has with mounted archer because you know they had to deal with all these Central uh, Asian nomadic uh, raiders. Uh, but for whatever reason, the European cavalry 
you know, from the Gallic cavalry down to later uh, medieval ages, they just never picked up uh, horse-mounted archery uh, uh, for 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 some strange reason, you know, which put them at a distinct advantage when they have to face warriors from the steppe. I think overall archery is rather foreign to their doctrine of warfare. One has to remember that the Celts don't really have a habit of firing off bows or even that much horsemanship. The only reason uh, that their reputation as cavalry uh, went into such high esteem by the Romans, who often battled against them, is because the Romans themselves didn't really cultivate much in terms of cavalry warfare themselves. So they they fostered this view that their northern neighbors in Germania and in Gaul uh, fielded better horsemen than themselves. Uh, and similarly, they cultivated a similar view uh, with the Spanish tribes in the Iberian Peninsula. But anyway, uh, in terms of this, they are reckoned to be the best horsemen in uh, the, the Roman army, uh, mostly because they are seasoned veterans uh, that have been loaned from Caesar's own contingent of cavalry. Uh, so they are widely regarded. And these horsemen, they're mostly just skirmishers, right? They, they, they're probably armed with like um, javelins for, for throwing, or do they yes. actually involve yes. in close quarter combat? As we read on later on in the uh, text by, by Plutarch, they are capable fighters, for sure. They are, they're, they are brave fighters, but they are lightly armed. And this is something that we're going to get back into. Uh, but they are not really uh, equipped for close quarter combat. Let's just put it that way. Uh, so just to... Continue on with the okay. array. The native auxiliaries include both cavalry and archers drafted from Roman Syria. Uh, and this is, I think, uh, part of Crassus' overall strategy to bring a balanced force uh, to the fray. However, they are not really described in detail and are really just not assumed to have been particularly remarkable in any way. But they are numerous, standing at 7,000 men, so they do form a significant portion of the army. So the composition and the size of Crassus' army was engineered in such a way as to take cities and to fight set-piece battles. Uh, so with the composition of this army, it also means that Crassus actively sought an engagement, a pitched engagement, uh, and to win that engagement in order to carry on the rest of the uh, the expedition without interruption, so to speak. Uh, and this in order to pursue the objective to reach the capital region of Babylonia and to quickly take the cities of Seleucia, Tessiphon, Babylon, what have you. So that's his... Now may I interrupt for a sure. second? Uh, what is the goal of Crassus' campaign at this point? I mean, did he just... Was it just a punitive expedition against the Parthian Empire by taking the very major commercial center of Tessaphon, or was it uh, was it actually adding it to Roman territory? 
I would say there's a third option, uh, which we detailed in the previous episode, and that is that there was a casus belli. The cause for war was that he was supposed to aid Mithridates III back to his throne. And this is uh, an, in, an inherited conflict that uh, Crassus got from Aulus Gabinius, his predecessor, who was uh, governor of Syria. So Crassus sort of inherited a, a, a conflict that wasn't really of his own making. But because the conflict uh, had not been settled through a peace uh, settlement that the Parthians had previously sent, he felt that, okay, well, let's see this through, and rather, let's make the Parthians into our clients. And the only way to really force that sort of scenario is to take the capital region. Oh, so so actually, even though Mithridates have died by this point, which was the original cause yes. to belly of the conflict, uh, but, yes, exactly. But, but, but Crassius decided to press ahead anyway because why not? He has a military power and Parthian yes. has been kind of a pain in the ass and, and it's mm. now to make them subjugate them to the Roman might exactly. and make them, uh, exactly. make them vast. Okay, okay, makes yes. sense. <laughs> so we know already the composition, the size of Crassus' army. Now, given what we know, of the casualties. Let's just put that aside for a second. Now, if we just make a, an estimation of how many uh, combatants have been in completeness, been assembled, we should say approximately 40,000 Roman combatants are present at the battle. I think that's a reasonable estimate given that uh, it would account for stray desertions and the few remaining garrisons after most of the garrison troops had rejoined the main army. So with that, we should now turn our attention to the Parthian force. Now, in contrast to the seemingly balanced Roman force, the Parthian army is actually a force of contrasts. And by that, I mean that they are mostly light cavalry who fight as horse archers. And... Then there is a complementary force of armored cavalry who are armed and armored as cataphracts. Now, this is as we previously established in the previous episode, that this is not a typical Parthian army. This cannot be emphasized enough. This is not a typical Parthian army. Serenus engineered this force specifically to deal with the Roman doctrine by negating the Roman book of tactics. Now, what I mean is that he had built an army built with speed, mobility, and distance in mind. The Roman tactics are negated. The best way to fight the Romans are not to fight according to their terms and try to overpower them. In fact, those terms, according to Serena's new force, is actually denied and countered. Serena's has his private army to his disposal, numbering at 10,000 seasoned and battle-hardened men, uh, in total out of which 9,000 are mounted bowmen and 1,000 are heavy cavalry. Now, this is a substantially smaller force than that of the Romans, who outnumber them by four, by four times. So as we established in the previous episode, the Parthian king Oroda sends Serenus away to stall and to harass the Romans in a sort of Parthian, uh, quote-unquote, Schlieffen plan. 
uh, named so after the German Schlieffen plan uh, during World War One. Now, it is doubtful that Orodes expected a force of Serena's size to be able to stand up to the Romans on their own. But Serena's, of course... Okay, now I'm going to have to interrupt. Yeah, sure. Is it compared to uh, Schlieffen plan because... Uh, Orodus and uh, Serenus were supposed to lead a pincer movement, like basically two armies uh, 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 converging on the Roman forces with acting as kind of like the yes. anvil and the hammer. Indeed. Is that, okay, so but who was who was supposed to be the anvil? Who was well, supposed to be the Serenus hammer? is supposed to be the uh, the tiny minuscule anvil, whereas Orodus, after he had been dealing with the Armenians, would wheel about and deliver the uh, the death blow to the Romans. This was the overarching strategy anyway. Uh, but ah. Serenus, of course, has other plans. It, it turns out that he's not really so much interested in, in being the bait. Now, and I'll just detail this very shortly. It turns out that apart from being a master tactician, who has engineered a force meant to negate and deter and counter the Roman tactics, he is a master in logistics. And I'm going to now detail exactly why this is the case. Serena's small force of 10,000 men is perfectly sized for his master signature and his truest legacy in military history. Mobile battlefield resupplying. Now that's a mouthful. I'll just repeat it again. Mobile battlefield resupplying. Now, by introducing this innovation, he has effectively multiplied the mileage of his soldiers who depend on ammunition. This is done by simply acquiring many more quivers of arrows, tens of thousands of arrows, and putting them with the baggage train of a thousand camels. This way, Serenus won't have to muster more troops, and he gets to keep his supply lines on the light side. Now, this makes for a truly potent and mobile force with great sustainability in terms of supplies. His all-mounted army can move quickly and attain crucial initiative against a much slower Roman force. Now, this becomes very important because the misapplied trope of desert warfare, quote-unquote, which we're also going to shortly address, is going to demand of Serenus, not Crassus, Serenus, to pay particular attention to supply management due to attrition factors. Now, for example, 9,000 well-drilled and reliable horse archers with the ability to say rearm four times is better than fielding four times the number of men, say 36 to 40,000 men of variable quality and with no ability to resupply, while at the same time costing four times as much to feed, it cannot be emphasized enough how revolutionary this is. It is such a smart approach to supply management and a tactical approach to troop economy. I mean, that's truly genius because people don't realize how much supply army needs. I mean, I, I read about a contemporary account of Chinese expedition into Central Asia where troop size of, say, 60,000 men usually require, say, 300,000 
people in just to to handling supplies, just to shipping all the necessary grains and and, and just just food. You know, it, it's it's really a big operation, and and by economizing on the the supply line and keep his uh, you know mobile forces truly mobile, this is really really revolutionary. Indeed, it keeps the costs down. This is very important to have in mind. It it's not free of charge to to wage war. It it costs money. It costs in terms of resources. And one has to be very careful about how those resources are managed. And by having efficient troop economy, one can solve a lot of problems. One can, for instance, solve the cost of feeding that army by, first of all, keeping a light force, but also making sure that that force is having a, a better mileage, so to speak, that if, if, if these troops are mainly ammunition-based, keeping a good supply of ammunition is really key to make sure that these troops keep being valuable. If you're going to have, for instance, 10,000 guys, but you have the ability to rearm them four times, they are going to be much more valuable and much easier to manage than four times the size of that army. Oh, yeah, because they're... Because they're Missile missile troops, right? I mean, it's it's really the the their power comes from their bow and their arrows. If they have unlimited supply of arrows, they can do unlimited amount of damage. Indeed, indeed, it's 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 crazy how no one has come up with this before. But this is Serena's true contribution to military history, and I'm going to uh, address this again a little bit later. But let's just keep this in mind that Serena's is is really really the mastermind behind this signature stroke. And this is something that Plutarch also admits in his texts. Now, the Parthian mounted archer is armed with a bow superior to anything fielded in the Mediterranean world, affording it uh, much greater range and power. So if- Is this a composite bow? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed it is. Uh, it, it is. It is a bow which is uh, I think my friend Nadim from Iran Utuan is actually much more qualified than I am to actually speak of this because he, he actually does practice archery. I don't. So I'm, I'm just really going by the books here. But it is, it is a superior type of bow, which affords a greater draw, but also it can, it can handle a superior type of ammunition. And this is where we actually come to the, the arrow and its design, which is... Yeah precisely designed to be efficient against armor. This is something that Plutarch also continuously reminds us in several passages uh, in the uh, primary source that he has left for us, uh, the, the Life of Crassus. So the arrows are specifically mentioned to be barbed, and this would have made their removal from a wound difficult and rather painful, much more painful than just uh, trying to... Uh, remove an arrow the ordinary way and these arrows are also described at some point to be able to puncture shields uh, though i would say that we can't take that at face value why why is that why why, why couldn't we take that at face value <laughs> 
Well, because we haven't really tested that. We haven't really put that claim to the test. I mean, I read a, a while back that this was tried with a, uh, I think with a Sasanian bow, with a Roman scutum at, at a distance, at a, at a very, very short distance. It was able to uh, penetrate, I think, if I remember this correctly, but it, it was also really, really close range. I'm not so sure it is a truthful reflection of battle conditions. Okay, but the idea yeah. is that the you know the compound bow is very powerful. Um, I mean, it basically yes. packs equivalent punch of a say like an English longbow, but unlike the English longbow, which is quite large, mm. the compound bow is quite compact so that it can easily be carried by a horse archer. Yeah. And and in such and such a and the fact plus the fact that the horse archer is mobile, yeah. which makes it even more Indeed. deadly because the the horse archer can just ride in close, yeah. shoot you right away before you have a chance <laughs> yeah. to catch up to him and then come real yeah. back, do it all over again. I mean like that's why the Infantry sometimes is kind of at the complete mercy of these horse archer without, you know, proper protection. I think that that kind of sums up why the horse archer is such a a versatile type of soldier to have on the field. Because first they can double as cavalry if need be. Now, they're not really armed for it, but they're very good at chasing down stragglers, as as we will later detail uh, as as we move ahead in this. but it's it's important to still mention that the, the type of armaments that they have, even even if we we can't exactly quote Plutarch for it, still the armament of the horse archer is simply superior to anything that the Romans fielded at this point in history. In fact, anything in the Mediterranean world, the the horse archer would simply have outclassed and outgunned let's just put it that way speaking of armor (laughs) let's talk about the parthian secret weapon oh yes so having now detailed the uh, horse archers we now move ahead to the other contrast in serena's army that is the armored cavalry the famous cataphracts and these are protected with suits of scale and helmets of margianian steel quote-unquote uh, now, Cassius Dio, uh, the other source that we often consult, mentions Seric iron, which means, of course, Serica being as, as in China. Uh, and this is kind of an interesting tidbit. Uh, and it kind of um, brings a question if, if there was a, a trade of, uh, of minerals between, between the Parthians and the Chinese. Anyway, I digress, as I always do. Uh, the cataphracts are further... Oh, that's right, because Seric means China, right, yes. in the ancient Greco context. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. I have to look it up, too. Indeed, indeed. So the cataphracts are further armored with, with banded armor on their uh, legs and, and arms. Uh, these, these would be the overlapping strips of armor that would be covering, uh, like, like overlapping uh, plates on their arms and legs. And uh, these would be ventilated so that they, uh, they can uh, facilitate movement. One can also call them tubular armor or, or cheires uh, in, in the Greek terminology or manica, as, as the Romans would call it after they would adopt it from the Iranian model. And the cataphracts 
would further be armed with a so-called contos, or a gigantic lance, uh, often simply referred to as a pike due to its uh, formidable length, uh, up to four meters in, uh, in length. Additionally, the uh, horseman would be carrying uh, an arming sword, uh, a mace, and a knife, or a dagger for that part. So if the horse archer is a master of distance warfare and keeping the distance, the cataphract is the opposite. He is the penultimate shock and melee cavalry with unparalleled staying power in battle. He, he would have outclassed anything that any of the Mediterranean cultures would have fielded. So the cataphract is armed for the charge, he's armed for the duel, he's armed for the joust, he's armed for, against armor, and he's armed for battles up close and personal. So, with the forces described, we can now move on to the next thing, which is, of course, the path to the clash. And what way Crassus and Serenus, respectively, will take to the battlefield, and most importantly, who gets to choose? Who gets to choose the battlefield? Now, believe it or not, Serenus is actually further away from the chosen battlefield than Crassus is. So he's racing against the clock to get there first. However, because his force is all cavalry, he has a much better chance of reaching there before Crassus does. So, from Seleucia, Serena's army takes the shortest and the most inhospitable route to their destination, and that is through the southern Tigris River plain, riding across the Sinjar uh, range, and the very real desert climate of the Jazeera region, now that we talk about the desert warfare. And that would be the uh, dusty flatland locked between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers at the widest separation, until the tributary river of the Chabur, or as the Romans called it, the Chaboras, where Serenus can resupply his army at Resaina, which would be located at today's Syrian city of Ras el Ain. Uh, and this name is taken from Aramaic, which literally means head of the spring, uh, describing the location as a good source of water. This is a logical stopping point of for resupplying. So, just to recap this very quickly, uh, if someone was doing desert warfare, it's not Crassus, it is Serenus. This is another thing that uh, casual commentators often get very wrong. Uh, for our uh, lay audience here, um, the area that we're describing is the same area that re until recently that ISIS has, uh, you know, established control. And if people remember in 2014, uh, the videos of ISIS pickups racing across dusty desert plains to take Mosul, that is a region. That is a kind of the landscape they're going through. Yeah. It's kind of featureless landscape of yeah. just Indeed. flat sand. Uh, it, it is actually the uh, the uh, region down to the T. I mean, all the way from today's Raqqa, all the way to Mosul, that would be the Jazeera region, essentially. Now, Raqqa is, is on the bit more of the, on the fertile side because it sits at the confluence uh, of the River Khabur. But 
uh, it does correspond to this otherwise very inhospitable uh, region called the Jazeera, which means the island in Arabic, very ironically, because it's perched between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, but it doesn't really feel like an island. It feels like, like a proper desert. Uh, so Serenus, anyway, he, he, he gets there to the desired location much quicker than Crassus does. So he has the uh, obvious initiative in selecting the battlefield. And here it's kind of important to uh, remind the listeners that uh, Silicus, the satrap of Mesopotamia, uh, who was also known for having battled the lopsided engagement against Crassus at Ichnai, uh, he would have had special knowledge of the geography considering that he was the satrap of Mesopotamia. So we're also, uh, by implication, uh, by implication, we're also seeing a partnership between Serenus and Silacus. So it's quite understated, but here it's quite obvious. Serenus coming from the eastern side of the Parthian Empire would not have had the same sort of knowledge of the terrain as Silicus would. Uh, so this anyway... Because Silicus is a local, yes. right? He would have a pretty good understanding of the, the local terrain indeed, and geography. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, that makes sense. So, they are perched up on one side while Crassus is still trying to retrace his route. So we're, we're seeing the paths here on collision course. Now, some comments have been made by casual observers that Crassus was making a mistake not choosing a southern path hugging along the Euphrates River uh, along the lines of Cassius' proposal. Now, this is not a viable route for many reasons, not least because it implies a massive delay and would leave the Romans strategically exposed with their backs to the river. It also goes contrary to Crassus' objectives. And that is, of course, to race towards Babylonia as quickly as possible and first to seek out an engagement so that he can get there without interruption. And the originator behind this, this proposal of, of hugging along the Euphrates River was Cassius Longinus, and who in spite of the great lengths that Plutarch goes to whitewash his name, is actually very often at the head of childish and, and quite asinine proposals. And we're going to bump into a number of them shortly, but just to really remind the listener, uh, it's, it's not good advice. It's it's really not good advice. Because... Okay, but one sure. second. What is Cassius' uh, position at this point in the army? Well, he is something of a senior commander. I think I think it's fair to say that he is sort of a second in command in this uh, command structure that that Cassius has got going. So Cassius can be seen as the uh, the second the second man in charge after Crassus. Okay, so, so he's actually quite important. He, he's quite important, but in this engagement, we're, we're going to bump into a number of examples of why his, his advice is often uncalled for and why Plutarch, uh, due to his agenda of, of blackening Crassus' name, often ends up attempting to cast Cassius into a more positive light. Anyway, uh, we're going to bump into a number of, of these uh, 
these rather humorous episodes shortly. Crassus sought a pitched engagement. We cannot escape this, this fact. Crassus was seeking a battle for all these reasons. I mean, first he, he wants to uh, get into Babylonia, but he understands that probably, likely, the Parthians have summoned an army to try to confront him. So he wants that pitched engagement and to win it, and then to be able to get into Babylonia without much interruption. So just to really put that into different perspective, he wasn't looking to sneak into Babylonia and to increase further risk to his army. He was seeking a pitched engagement. Now, this is a prudent strategy in spite of what we know of the outcome. Very important to have in mind. Crassus expected to fight a typical Parthian army, not the modified, logistically supercharged version of it engineered by Serenus. Now, in terms of the location of the battlefield itself, I'm going to admit that the following research is original, but a possible candidate for where Serenus may have pitched his camp would be the Tektek range in, in modern-day uh, southeastern Turkey. Uh, and this Tektek range is, is a bit of an elevation. Now, there, there are a series of, of, a, of a continuous hill. It's like a big hill, essentially. Now, this would have given him some good elevation to survey the flatlands that lay ahead, the, the plains of Haran. Now, given the uh, large size of the Roman army, they would have been seen from afar. So this location is ideal in that it takes less than a ride to ride back to Resaina or Rasul Ain. So in spite of the battle's namesake, it is not located at Karhai or Haran. The battle takes place east of the river of Balissus, or the river Balich. The battlefield proper takes place likely at the flatlands east of today's uh, Akchakale, which lay in Turkey at the border with Syria. But because it's convention to name the engagement after Karhai or Haran, we are, we're just using this, this orthography, this, this, this convention of naming the battle. So basically, Crassius wants to force a decisive battle with the Parthian forces, you know, by defeating them, uh, the, the Parthian main force, he's hoping to force them to, you know, acknowledge superiority of the Roman forces and thereby becoming yes. a client kingdom, right? Okay, yes. that makes sense. Correct, correct. So this, the path to this engagement is also further, sorry, uh, the path to engagement is also defined by misinformation and by intelligence gathering. This is an aspect that often gets gets lost as we uh, an analyze the uh, the outcome and the uh, the very uh, the making of the engagement itself. Now we did mention that the region occupied by the Romans since the last campaign was pacified, but it did not mean that it was friendly. It doesn't mean that this region is friendly to the Romans. It is fertile field for all sorts of subterfuge and gathering of information and may have been facilitated by figures like Ariamnes or Abgar, depending on which source one consults, uh, if it be Plutarch or Cassius Dio or other Arab chieftains like Alcidonius of the tribe of the uh, Rambei. So 
the information itself in this little information warfare would have been of such nature that it would make sure that Serenus and Crassus would clash. So this is kind of important to have in mind that the information that was relayed was engineered uh, to facilitate that collision course. Now, incidentally, the information proved useful to Crassus as he sought the engagement, but his expectation was something else, that it was those expectations that the misinformation catered, that he was to meet up uh, against a typical Parthian army. Now, if he was to be given proper information that Serena's army was neither large nor at the paper nor at the face of it particularly formidable, even better than for Crassus, because, because it implies even less effort from his part. So with the path to the battle charted and our battlefield located, we can now finally move on to what I think the listeners are, are waiting for, and that is the battle itself. Yes. Now, yes, we're, we're, we're finally going to get into the battle Oh, after all the technical bullshit that we went through, we're going to finally get into the battle itself. <laughs> we suffered. We suffered to, for this oh point. Oh, my God. <laughs> so anyway, the, the battle itself. The stuff contained in the primary sources are embellished with the action movie stuff. Let's just put it that way. It's pure action movie stuff. It's an absolutely a treat to read it. It's... Not not as dry as someone might otherwise think, and I, I really urge the listeners to to consult Plutarch after after this episode because it's 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 surprisingly fresh, all of this stuff. So it's also here that the versions between Cassius Dio and Plutarch really differ. Uh, uh, however, as we established in the previous episode, Plutarch is the more reliable version and bears more information that point to testimonials, whereas Cassius Dio is a little bit more dramatic in sometimes the wrong places. So, Crassus' army stops to water and to refresh itself at the river Balissus before moving eastwards to seek out Serena's. And of course, to seek out the enemy's host, you send scouts. And the brilliance shows in how well Serena's was, quote-unquote, hiding in plain sight, so to speak. Now, let the scouts report back to Crassus of the rather modest Parthian force. Now, what would they report? Uh, how, how would the report be, be uh, looking like? Like, oh, sir, the Parthians brought cavalry, and uh, it's not a big army. It would be like, oh, they have camels, so... Yeah, they have supplies too? Or we expected a lot of the cataphracts, but uh, they barely got any? So that the Parthians were cavalry-oriented was really no secret to anyone. And if they had supplies, well, all armies have supplies. What they couldn't tell was that the Serena's army was all cavalry, all cavalry, and that the baggage contained his masterstroke, his signature, that was arrows, arrows, and more arrows. So Serena's was deliberately putting on a show of how diminutive his army was. He even orders his cataphracts to wear skins and robes to conceal their armor. 
Of course, this would not be immediately obvious to a Roman scout. I mean, let's also face it, how up close can a Roman scout get without getting caught? So Crassus upon... Yeah. So basically, Serenus really played the part of the bait, right? Which was the original yeah. plan. He was supposed to be the bait, but he really played it to a T, but... Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he had everything to gain by by making his army a lot more modest than it actually was. Because it was, first of all, the Roman primary expectation that the Parthians would be gathering a significant force, a comparably sized force to that of the Roman host. They didn't. So it's it's an even smaller, much smaller army than the Romans were counting on. But it was part of Serena's whole whole tactic of hiding in plain sight. Now, Crassus, upon receiving such a report, ought to have gotten suspicious and cautious, true to his nature. Cassius, again, in Plutarch's attempt to wash his name clean, proposes a standard Roman formation with infantry in the center and cavalry at the wings. This is the standard Roman procedure. Now, Crassus goes along with it, but it makes no sense given the environment that they were in and given the, well, strange report that the uh, scouts had come back and reported to him. So the scouts did report presence of cavalry, which means that the current formation risks getting outflanked. So Crassus instead opts for a formation, the hollow square, or as some computer geeks from the Total War series might titulate it, the noob square, which would array troops as a rectangle with equal strength on all sides, with cavalry ready to break out everywhere. And it's actually not a bad idea at all. In fact, it shows that Crassus' uh, cautious approach was actually manifesting itself again. So this way, Crassus gets to play to the rules of the terrain and plans according to the tactical reality of getting overrun by cavalry by affording equal protection everywhere. And Crassus knows that the battle is just ahead. However, there's a... So basically, the hollow square is like British infantry square that uh, the Brits would later deploy, say, at the Battle of Omdurman against uh, yeah. forces in Sudan, right? So basically, they have cavalry in the center ready Indeed. to deploy any time. They have the, the infantry all on all sides just re ready to repulse attack from any direction. I mean, exactly. on paper, it's, it's, it's a very um, solid, solid formation. It is. I mean, one cannot really blame Crassus for choosing this formation, given, given the report that he received. And he knew that the battle was going to get around the corner. He, he already packed a substantial force. It was not going to get whittled down anyway. But there's a big caveat with this sort of formation as well. That is that this army is going to move much slower in order to keep the integrity of this formation. Now, for Serenus and Silicus, who are observing this from likely from this, this hillock that I described previously, this, this is all in plain sight for them. They, they likely see this taking place as their forces mobilize into a column 10 banners or dragons deep 
and arrays so that they can, it, it can only be seen from the width rather than its depth. So they're deploying, the Parthians are deploying in a column. Uh, and the Parthian column picks up the pace and comes into the visual range of the Romans, seeing first the concealed cataphracts. And of course, the cataphracts being uh, dressed up and in skins and robes, they're, they're, they're not particularly striking any impress, like, like they're, they're, they're not striking any particular impression with their Roman hosts. Now, what happens is going to be strikingly dramatic. The Parthian drum battery unleashes a ferocious soundscape that would come to define the rest of the battle. Plutarch describes how these large drums mounted on horses and camels are decorated with bells of bronze and that they gave off a harsh sound that unnerved the Romans when they were being played on all quarters. And the Parthian cataphracts are now preparing for a charge against the Romans while removing their concealments at a gallop. And this, as they do it, their polished armor catches the high sun, making for what must have been an absolutely striking sight. Serenus, who leads the charge in person, applies psychological warfare to unnerve the Romans and to unsettle them on their own expectations. Now, do we know what time of the day this uh, attack happened? It is like approximately. Yes, we we have we have a fairly good idea uh, when it happens. It is likely at daybreak. So it's not it's not at the dawn. It's it's certainly at the daybreak. It's uh, it's uh, likely to be at the high noon. When when the sun is at this planet, I'm imagining the the per Parthian forces are just riding out of the east as the sun rises behind yeah. them, right? So potentially even blinding the the Romans waiting for them, and that that would you know make even yeah. more impressive. And it an is it is really sight. badass, isn't it? <laughs> now, oh, oh, of course, yeah. for for all this badassery, this this tactic goes so-and-so. The Romans are certainly distracted, but not to the degree where their line would falter against a massed cavalry charge. And Serenus sees how the Romans are standing fast, and he feigns the charge according to his original plan, while the drums signal for the mounted archers in the columns behind him to fan out and to envelop the Roman square. 